I'm one of those people that doesn't notice, even though it's it's in my work, you know, it's in, in the comics I make. And I'm, I'm always told, oh, I like this story because it reminds me of this desert and this and that. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, they have to bring it to my attention. But otherwise, uh, um, yeah, I think it does. I like the calmness. It was a little strange because uh, they have to import trees here, or at least when they were building it up where I live, and there was no birds. And so my sister would come. She goes, there's no birds. It's driving me crazy. You know, and uh, the, the 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 street that's behind us wasn't so busy then. So we never heard traffic. We never heard anything except weird noises beyond the mountains. <laughs> Area 51, you know. There's a sense of that in Los Angeles to some degree. You know, you've got the, you've got like Chinatown, the, the movie mm-hmm. Chinatown, the aqueduct, all of that. You know, the, the idea that there was sort of, they were kind of basically trying to build up this, desert in the, the middle of nowhere. But I think that's even more so the case in Las Vegas. There's just really, I mean, I, I spent a little time in Pahrump for a work-related thing, but there's nothing. Yeah. It's just such, it's such a strange anomaly that kind of ex- exists alone in the desert. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, I just gonna, you know, I, I guess I needed the change. So I liked, I liked the quiet and, and the, we went through a whole uh, period of having real rotten neighbors, you know, uh, because a lot of people are just moving from different places and they're bringing their kids because they were kicked out of where they were because their kids were so rotten. And we had some rotten neighbors next to us. But that that was a phase, oddly enough, like for 10 years, we have it. It's uh, been really nice, you know, but we went through a period of like people would move in and go, what's no wonder they moved here. They're running away from the law. They're running away from, you know, civilized people. There actually is a phenomenon too of people who go to Vegas for strip related reasons and just kind of get mm-hmm. stuck, like monetarily, financially, just kind of end up unable to financially to leave the city. It sounds like sometimes, yeah, yeah. At a lot of a lot of uh, downtown, you know, there's a lot of motels with just gamblers. You know, just basically, you know, gambling their lives away. You know, it's weird. <laughs> it's not me. I, I, I luckily I don't have that uh, addiction. So ironically, it's a bad place to live if you do have that addiction. Because it's everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to do. You just walk up to a table. You were so, I mean, you were kind of ahead of the curve, I think, in being able to to work remotely. You know, a lot of us are just sort of adjusting to this right now. But does your location have any impact? I mean, it seems like you're probably able to essentially do what you do from anywhere. Yeah, that's that was always been the thing about being a cartoonist. I can live anywhere, do the exact same thing. Uh, I expected to... to Change, you know, maybe Vegas would influence me as you know as far as what I was uh, drawing, but uh, no, I, it's it's the same stuff that I you know grew up with in Southern California. I still draw the same comics, same type stories. There's a fair amount of diversity in what you do in terms of art styles and, and storytelling. You know, there are there are cartoonists that you came up with who really kind of hit their stride. You know, in much the same way that I, I think a lot of. Uh, musicians tend to have their most creative periods, you know, in their, in their twenties and kind of get locked mm-hmm. in that style. But you do, you do strike me as somebody who has continued to push his own boundaries and explore new things thematically and stylistically. It, that all seems the same to me, but people have to, like I said, people have to tell me, wow, what were you, what were you going with that? Where I was like, going with what? Uh, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to push, well, I try to push myself to, as just trying to be a good cartoonist, you know, just to keep, things interesting. It's been a long time. It's almost 40 years, you know? Well, anyway, what happens to a lot of cartoonists who last that long and they just get into a rut and just keep, you know, stay in the comfort zone. I'm definitely there a lot of the times, but I I do want to make things interesting down the line. I suspect one of the nice things about the way you position your career is you do have this 
this huge world that you've been building that you can always go back and revisit, but you don't live in Palomar all the time. No, that, that I did for, you know, how many years? 15 years, I guess it was. And then I started to go jump back and forth just because uh, at the time Palomar just became, uh, I don't want to say restrictive because it wasn't, I mean, I could do whatever I want, but I didn't want to get into the fantasy uh, thing of like, oh, this is a, you know, a dream story or this is a, because I like drawing all kinds of different things and they just didn't apply to Palomar all the time. So I decided to have Palomar there part of the time and then the rest of the time, uh, you know, other places, even if I'm using the same characters. I have a hypnotist in front of me. If you wanted to do something like that, the only way it could sort of tangentially live within the Palomar universe is if you set the, if somebody falls asleep and basically lives through this as a dream. Right. So I decided to do the movie thing because that's what the like, hypnotist is and the, and the flip book is uh, Scarlet by Starlight. They, these are, these are films I, I just I use the exact ex- excuse of uh, of saying, well, these are edited versions of the movies because they're obviously not as long as movies, you know. I, I just want I created I used one of the uh, uh, characters you know, linked to the Palomar characters to become an actress to be, to to focus on these stories. They were originally just supposed to be for Love and Rockets, you know, sixteen page, uh, you know, at you know edited you know, edited adaptations of movies but i got uh, ambitious because at the time when i started them uh, I, I realized i hadn't done a graphic novel i hadn't done because that was the thing to do like you're a good artist you do a graphic novel well i found out that that's not tougher than it sounds even it uh <laughs> well because when you serialize you you can make mistakes along the way and then when you collect it or when by the time you get back you can fix those things when you write everything all for 200 pages or whatever it is and, and then you get to it you find that there's so many things you want to change you can do that but it's hard when you already know what, what the ending is if you do know what the ending is so anyway i just found that it was a lot better to uh Serialized. If you and if you look at all the, the acclaimed graphic novels, they're they're all seri- most of them are serialized. You know, you got Watchmen, Mouse, uh, you know, all that stuff. There are a lot of other pragmatic reasons to serialize them as well. I mean, one of them is probably mm-hmm. just it's steadier work. To, I assume to to release <laughs> these in serial form, and then the other the, the other being that you know I talk to people. I talk to like Craig Thompson, right? And he just like works on this, you know, 500 page book and basically just disappears out from the world. This is an opportunity to continue to exist in the world. Uh, yeah. I, yeah I, and I grew up, I mean, this has a, this is a large factor. I grew up with comic books, right? They came out every month, even with the uh, thinking of uh, inflation, they were pretty uh, cheap, you know, to buy, you know, when I was a kid, they were 12 cents and then they're 25 and then 20, 30, 30 you know, the, the, the prices kept going up really fast, but that's still change, you know? And, uh, so you can enjoy really <laughs> I think about the real comic books that influenced so many, like say Marvel comics in the mid sixties. Those are twelve cent comics. And it's to think about what they've built on that, especially the movie industry. This was just because they only they only had themselves to uh, worry about if it was good or not. You know, it was up to Stan Lee to edit it and the artist to be that good. So I love the so knowing that growing up, I thought, well, I can do that too. I probably won't make the impact they did, but I can make comics that I want to make, but they have to be like comics. You know, have to be short. I need to. I need them to be coming out all the time. And so when we did Love and Rockets as a as a as a book for a couple of years, that worked for stories, but it was hard on us to maintain that kind of uh, grilling, you know, activity. So you do you do sort of contextualize these as being 
I guess short films is 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 the way you put it. And the, the Marvel example is an interesting one because there there was certainly a period. This is still the case to some degree, but there is a period there, especially in the the 2000s, where it seemed like a substantial portion of the comics industry basically existed as an IP factory, you know, as as an mm-hmm. opportunity for people to get their screenplays out there. All right. When indie comics were really sort of at their height, you know, did you ever see an opportunity to? potentially cash in on this heck yeah yeah well actually we've uh, since after a few years after love and rocket started we've, we've been asked to uh, to develop things for film but see this was the 80s so people just didn't know what to do with it you know it was in a comic book you can, we can get away with it because nobody could tell us not to do it well when you get in that business there's plenty of people telling you not to do it you know do they have to be hispanic does it have to be this does it well my my, my my story of Palomar, it's about a small Latin American town with surreal elements. Where's the rockets? It's called Love and Rockets. Where's the rockets? I go, oh, they're figuratively, they're rockets that aren't really there. It just means, and you and you can't explain that to a, a Hollywood person, you know, money person. They, they're just like, what? Give me the meat. Give me what this, what people want, why people want to see this. You couldn't explain that to them in, in the 80s. And then in the 90s, we, we they kept trying it. So we've, we've just basically um, ended up with people that didn't, know what to do with it and i understand that streaming's different now things are different now you, uh, there's m- much more things that they can they can do and so there actually is some inter- serious interest in uh, making doing uh, some uh, comics from palomar to get them on streaming but still talks even at the height of you being asked to do some of this stuff you never you never were tempted to soften it to Oh, or to, to manipulate it, or just to generally to make it more accessible for a wider audience. No, because I, I will quote personally. I don't know how to do that. You know, I wouldn't know how to do it. I only know how to make stories the way I make them. I mean, you've a lot of people have seen. I've done mainstream comics. I've done extra comics. I didn't think they were as effective as my Palomar work, my personal work. So I'm just that's just where I am. I'm better at doing that. But there just wasn't anything. I hate to say it. There was nothing to sell because at the time, comic book toys, comic book. You know. Uh, so it was, no, there was nothing to sell. There was nothing to really, it just, they, you know, they're just, the entertainment world wasn't ready for it, you know, just anyway. So, so as all our peers got option money, we never did. We never got option money for, uh, for our, for our work. I have certainly experienced in my own life. It's like, it's hard to see your peers be successful. You know, you want to root for people, but it's hard to see people like experience that level of success and not at least harbor some sense of jealousy. No, actually, no, no, not at least not consciously. I know when I, when Matt Graham and Matt Groening hit with the Simpsons, it was like, go for it, dude. You know, when uh, Dan Klaus got, you know, ghost world and art school confidential, I go, this is great. I was good friends with Dave Stevens. He, and the, how did the hell that when you think back, how did the hell did Disney produce a movie, an indie comic, you know, that was, that. back then it was just business as usual. Now you think about it, like, wait a minute, Disney said yes to a comic book nobody ever heard of. Uh, but Dave and, and, and the director, Joe Johnston, they just, they just convinced them, this is going to work. This is like Indiana Jones, because you have to have the catch words, you know, Indiana Jones, you know, uh, and it's, it's a little bit of Star Wars and their action and planes and stuff. So they managed to uh, convince them that it was going to be, because Dick Tracy did, okay, it wasn't as big as Batman, but it did okay. So they thought, oh, this 30s stuff might work, you know, 1930s stuff. So, so that, so uh, yeah. So when I think about it and I think about Bob Burden's comics, uh, Mystery Men, that was a movie with Ben Stiller. It's like, wait a minute, these got made as movies. The the Ninja Turtles, boom, you know, instant hit. But we just didn't have anything to sell. We just didn't have that grabber like, oh, I get this joke. I get the joke. I get it. You know, that was none of that. And it's about people talking. 
<laughs> you know, which, you know, I think would, what did become a phenomenon a bit later with some of, you know, the Tarantino Miramax stuff there. So he might've mm-hmm. been ahead of your time on that front. Yeah. I spoke to somebody about this, about this recently. And, and I think there is sort of a, a generational thing, an idea of selling out that doesn't really exist anymore just because no. the media landscape has changed so much. But as somebody who, you know, grew up in and around the punk scene, the hardcore scene of Southern California, I mean, do you think that there was a, a little bit of that ethos kind of baked into your philosophy of not wanting to water stuff down or sell out to the man? Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that because of the, of the material itself. It wasn't just that, you know, I made comics and I didn't want them to mess with it. It was just these comics, uh, and I think my brother feels the same way, were ours. They belonged to us. They were, they were about, they only cre- existed because we made them, because they're part of who we are. So that's where that came in, uh, as well as the punk ethic. It was, uh, it was like, no, you're not going to change it. It's, it's not made for you to change, you know, because we were going against what we didn't care about uh, pop culture at the time. Like, Hey, there's no, I, I keep using uh, like Palomar as, a, as an example, because it was like, there's, there's nothing else like this. You know, you might see a 1950s movie that's like it. Uh, you might see something, you know, from another time that's similar to it. But, but at the time it was just, there isn't, wasn't anything like it and changing it would just be pointless because they've done that a lot. They've taken comic book properties and just changed them completely. And, they were destroyed. Streaming is different now. They're, they're able to uh, serialize these stories, these types of stories, and get a, a large fan audience. Frankly, I don't even know how you have a conversation with somebody who asks you where the rockets are. You know, somebody who yeah. is like clearly, because I mean, this is very much a thing in, in Hollywood. It was, and it probably still is, where they see something mm-hmm. has a little bit of countercultural excitement about it. They try to option it, but mm. it's pretty clear when you're talking to somebody who has never opened the front cover of one of your books. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not. It's in the beginning stages. It's fine. The people who come to us to do it, they're enthusiastic. They get it. They want to get it done. But it's going up a ladder of of, of tougher personalities. You know, the higher they are, the 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 more they want to keep that job, right? So you know, because they're so well paid. And then the higher and higher you get, you, that's when you get the the older guys. They're like, I don't understand. What, what's what, why would this sell? Tell me why would this sell? Because, you know, they're about money. And that's business, of course. But I'm like, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I'm not those guys that can just, I'm not Tom Arnold. I can't, you know, weasel my way in, you know, to just, he's able to talk his way into things. I That's not me. It's like the, the materials, how, what it is, you know. And if you guys, because, you, you know, once it's in their hands, when you sign that, that paper, the visuals, you know, the visual version of it is theirs. Meaning they can make any TV or movie they want to once, they want to keep the artists in there just, so they could get ideas they don't have to pay for. So a lot of it is simply, uh, you know, oh, you know, uh, it's ours now. We're going to make it better because there's always people who want to make it right. But then there's somebody walks in and goes, I don't like that. Let's do it different. You know, so so that's just not how it works, you know, for me as an artist to tell these stories. Uh, but like I said, now things are different. People are more open-minded. They're more interested in making uh, different types of shows with different colored people. That's another aspect of that that I can't even wrap my head around. Obviously, it was people were, I guess, more openly or more openly racist is probably the only way of saying it. How do you respond to a comment like that? I mean, are you able to just answer that straight face? Like, why are there so many uh, Latino people in this? It, I, that's when I just, you know, keep my mouth shut, you know, and have a fake, fake smile and stuff because I'm not going to get anywhere arguing with them. You know, um, you know, I, it, it just like, oh, OK, you just figure out. 
who's saying it and and you think about that okay this is this person saying it because not everybody's saying that you know it's usually a group of people you're talking to so it's not just one person saying things you don't want to hear it's it's always well, it's always the one who's got the you know who's got the money <laughs> they, no they just uh, i don't know i don't know it's uh things are changing though i i see a brighter future for brown people on screen <laughs> when i talk to to a person, anyone in in alternative indie comics who started reading comics in the in the eighties and nineties, Love and Rockets is always pointed to as this singular thing. And obviously, there were other books that came along. You know, there was Eight Ball and Hate, but it's a slightly before my time. But from you know, from my standpoint, it just seems like it was really kind of a, the first of its kind in, in that respect. When did you when did you and your brothers realize that this was something that you could? actually do that there was a path that wasn't a syndicated comic strip or a superhero book it was pretty early on because both their publishers gary groth and kim thompson they were behind it the whole way they wanted their their reasons were a little more selfish at least gary's were they he were more about well they were just more about we're going to crush our enemies we're going to have a comic that comes out it sounds like could, gary <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but in, in it, for us it was a good thing because he he was just pigheaded he goes no we're going to get this done we're going to get noticed we're going to say we this is the comic we're doing and they were behind us with, with that you know like behind us doing what we wanted to do and luckily you know the, as the, our stories progressed, they were fine with that. They thought this is good. And they uh, just, they just like to have basically literally an alternative scene, alternative comics, comics uh, for somebody who's just out, out. That's what I used to think outgrown superhero comics. Like, yeah, you can enjoy them all you want, but after a while you hit a wall for me anyway, just like movies. You know, if I watch, you know, I've got cable and if they show the Avengers one more time, you can always switch to another movie. There's, there's, uh, you know, in comics, you couldn't do that so much at the time. Anyway, early 80s. It was like Marvel, DC, and the sad other companies that were just <laughs> struggling to stay and survive. To, to survive. And uh, so anyway, so we, we had like-minded force going toward making a, our own comic and making our own blip in the world. So, you know, and, uh, you know, like Jaime and I, we're, we, we were just fresh off the punk scene. You know, we're still going to shows. We're still, so, you know, you do have that attitude that, well, we're going to do this anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, we had no, we had nowhere to fall. You know, really, it was like, it, the comic existed or, or it didn't exist. It's, there's nothing we could do about it if it didn't exist, because there's probably financial factors, you know, keeping it going. But we managed to make it through. <laughs> How long into the process of publishing were you when you realized that hey, we, this is we might actually be onto something that people are actually interested in this thing we're making? It was it, it was a slow roll. Uh, it just people started picking like around issue four. Then we went down to the uh, you know because the first four issues were sixty four page comic. Uh, we couldn't ha that was just too much to deal with. So we we broke it down to a thirty two page comic, and that seemed to when it started getting noticed. It was because uh, my brother's art, we were still like taking from pulp references just for a gag, just the way, actually like just the way early punk did, taking these early, early trashy references and, and, and applying them to comics or, or music at the time, punk. And it all kind of worked. It was kind of, certain, I don't want to say a joke. Yeah, I guess a joke. So Jaime would have rocket ships and he would have all that stuff, but that was really just a gag. He was really concerned with the characters. And when we once we found out that the readers were more interested in the characters than all the uh, uh, stylistic goofy stuff around it we just focused on that and so palomar was uh really focusing on that uh, i mean there's surreal elements there's crazy art in it but it's not focused on the daring do of superheroes or, or aliens and that kind of stuff which is fun to draw but it gets boring real quick i'll admit it 
gets boring real quick. Something Jaime told me a, a few years ago in an interview, and it's it's one of those things where somebody tells it to you, and it's, it's obvious when you hear it, is that if you're going to sit down and work on a book for a prolonged period of time, you need to make sure that you're drawing something that you want to draw over and over again. And I, I suspected that that was maybe part of what made him draw cars or dinosaurs, is that it was fun to draw. You know, obviously, the, uh, people attach themselves to the, the human interest story, but was there something in your own work that you found that you were putting on paper because it was would sustain your interest as, a, as an artist? It's just simply that I could tell, you know, I was challenged myself to tell stories without the crutches of funny science fiction, funny uh, spaceships, ray, you know, ray guns. To, do, to tell a compelling story with just people of course, it's all drawn differently and the backgrounds are different or whatever. But that was important to me because as a kid, besides when I was a kid, I grew up, you know, watching monster movies. Every monster movie I could watch, I had, I'd watch them all. And then my mom would be watching movies and I would watch like it might be a crime movie or something. And I watch, I go, this is like a monster movie, but the, I kept expecting a monster, but there wasn't any. And I realized, oh, you can tell a story that feels the same way and entertainment wise, but it, there's no monster at the end. I thought I go, I should try to make comics like that. You know, they're, they're just about people. It's still creepy and weird, but it's, there's really no monster in it. <laughs> and that's that's basically where I made uh, made that leap. So thinking about it, and and I and I and just growing up, recognizing what was taken seriously was you know seri- uh, uh, films without monsters. Simple as that. Real simple uh, logic. I thought, well, the movies without monsters get you know awards. They get even though I look back at it and I, there's great monster movies that are better than a lot of uh, <laughs> dramas without them, uh, but. That's that's because there's so many movies. We didn't have that in comics. So, you know, that was time to change in the 80s. So that's why, you know, it's just like the early punk days. It's like Love and Rockets was one thing. Eight Ball was another. Hate was another. Jim Woodring stuff was another. You know, it, it was just there were different individuals coming out with these comics. But everybody had drawing chops and writing chops. It wasn't just this fanzine stuff. You know, everybody had a background to be able to tell these stories with good art and good storytelling. And that's what uh, really kick things up like people with uh, uh with real chops and real real interest in making good comics different different types of comics for adults uh they started coming out of the woodwork you know and that was great that was a great time in hindsight it was part of what made you trailblaze your own path in the industry the notion that that maybe you know making superhero comics or or doing a daily strip was sort of kind of alien and unattainable, you know, as these like punk kids from mm-hmm. Southern California, did those seem like unrealistic paths? Because obviously you were interested in both of those and, and those are sure. things that you grew up on. But I, you know, I grew it. I outgrew it. I mean, I read Spider-Man as a kid. I'm talking about I'm a kid, 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 not a teenager. And that was the Ditko comics. And so I'm, it, they're in brain, they're just burned in my brain as great comics. And I look back at them and they are, you know, it's not like I go back and go, oh, I used to like this. You, I say it, that more about lesser Marvel comics that I won't mention because uh, I know people that worked on them. So. <laughs> um, but I just I just didn't have the energy to pursue it. You know, like I would probably learn to draw a good Spider-Man page and be proud of myself because it was so hard to do and to finish. But I would get bored to do the next. I would get really bored. It just I just like I like I'm super selfish. I really want to be in control of what I'm doing. But at the same time, I'm aware that, yeah, but you better do something good. If you're going to do it, that's always on our mind. We still, even uh, to this day, Jaime and I look at our comics going, we want this next issue to be good. And if it doesn't meet that, we go, well, the next one will be. And the next one will, we'll just push ourselves to still, to try to be good, you know, do our best. There's never any like, well, this Batman comic is going to sell anyway, whoever does it. So do it, whatever you want. That's can be a good thing, but you have to be invested in Batman. 
I'm a fan of Batman, but I'm not invested in pursuing his adventures. Is there kind of a healthy competition with with your brothers, Jaime, specifically, that really pushed you forward as an artist? Yeah, actually, and he tells me it's both. It's uh, both of us. I mean, I'd look at his, well, because, okay, like when we started Love and Rockets, he was a star instantly. There's complete good reasons for that. He's drew so well. And he did pick the cool parts of uh, pop culture, junk culture, like dinosaurs and a caveman and cave women and rockets and all that, all the fun stuff. But then he, when he started focusing on the punk girls, he thought, well, punk is more interesting because that's real life and nobody knows about it. Because if you all look at comic books about music before, and I'm tooting my horn here, they were terrible. Anytime rock and roll was introduced into comic books, it was like rock and roll on the Brady Bunch or Gilligan's Island. You know, it was like, what, what's that seven string guitar he's playing? What is that? What is he's, they're dressed up as astronauts? What what band is this? What that had nothing to do with music? You know what bands were like? So we, you know, since being in the punk scene, it's up and close, personal. It's not like going to an arena show. You know, going to see Emerson, Lincoln Palmer, and you're like five miles away, and they do their you know classic thing. And then they go away in the limo and we go home, you know, $35 poorer <laughs> or whatever it was in those days. Um, how much did it, what did it cost for me to see Emerson Lake and Palmer? Well, it wasn't, a, you know, 120 bucks. That's for sure. Back back then. Anyway, um, so being having punk in our face and seeing how and being and then, you you know, you leave the club and there's everybody's on the street and that's where the action is. And it was crazy. You know, it was just uh, we just observed that. And there was so many stories in the early punk shows that we went to. You had so many stories to tell, you know, what, what was going on. And like I said, you go to see Emerson and Palmer. There's nothing to tell other than where did you sit? Oh, way back. Did they blow up stuff? Yeah. You know, you know, that's it. Whereas punk was like insane you know cops pulling up and you know guys it's just crazy you know we would have to find the we've talked about this a million times we would to find the black flag concert we would just look for the helicopters i'm serious <laughs> like where's the plane i don't know in los the, angeles there's helicopters <laughs> everywhere yeah the, yeah this is before there was too many helicopters uh this the, yeah now it's constant but then it was just you knew what the co- helicopters were for and it was the black flag show sure enough because later on uh years later when uh the Robert Blake thing controversy, but his wife getting murdered. Yeah, that we, we live down the street from that, from what that happening. So one night I'm talking to somebody on the phone. I can't remember who it was, and I was like, "What the f?" There was so many helicopters. I mean, insane helicopters. And then my wife said on the news, "Oh, they're they're tracking Robert Blake's house." And I'm like, "Oh, wow, that's why." So it was weird to be just. Right there. Yeah, a murder, a classic Hollywood murder and all that stuff. It was weird. It was like, whoa. But if I may, stuff was sort of grounded in, in the punk scene, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you were drawn to, to Palomar, which is like, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't your reality at the time. It was, it wasn't, it's not, it's mm-hmm. not the fantasy specifically, but it, mm-hmm. it's not really necessarily a reflection of where you were at the time. Um, It just, well, like I said, to finish with Jaime, it was just that the, the, his, his great storytelling and artwork was so like, just kaboom that people never thought before uh, Love and Rockets, before Hyman's work got out there, that there was like, re- I don't, don't want to say realistic, but representational art uh, in an underground comic. It was always stylized, like Robert Crumb and um, Gilbert Shelton, uh, S. Clay Wilson. It was stylized cartooning. They, they were goofing on old style cartooning and just made them as crazy, as wacky as they could, uh, sex and violence. So nobody had seen that with a black and white type comic because unless this was Conan or some horror comic, you know, creepy and eerie or something, that kind of art. Heim was telling a story about people with that kind of art. And that was a big game changer. It was like, whoa, okay. So basically Heim got that attention right away and it was all deserved. 
And I basically, basically had the other half of the book to fill in, fill in which I did most of. Uh, so I just thought, so I'm free to do what I want. I don't have to worry about getting people's attention. The tension's already there. People are already buying the book. They're already. So I had, here I had 40 pages to do what I wanted to, you know, or whatever it was. And so that's when I dared, I dared myself to do Palomar. So if it died after the first issue, it, so what? You know, it didn't matter because, you know, I didn't have anywhere to fall. I just have to get a job. But. What was the dare? What what, what was, uh, what was um, I guess, difficult and, and unrealistic about it for you to do initially? At the time, 1982 to 83, it was simply having uh, Latinos in the in comics and being the good guys. They weren't the villains. They weren't the drug pushers. They weren't the, they were the normal people that we can relate to, but they're you know, completely different culture than what comic book readers are not used to. Uh, Luckily, uh, they I, I I managed to make a story, the first Palomar story, as something that people wanted to come back to. They thought, "Oh, I like the story. This is like a." It was always compared to a movie. Oh, this is like a movie. Oh, yeah, and I'm, I was flattered, sort of. I go, no, it's comic book. But uh, anyway, so it, it, they, so some people to this day uh, will just say that's the best thing I've ever done was the first Palomar story, and and I, and I accept that as a as, as as a kindness, you know, that's super nice to say, but. It's also like, yeah, but you were 20 and it was the first time you saw it. You know, when you see my comics now, you've seen it all. So it's it's not, you know, it doesn't have the same impact. In my own life, I'm trying to get better about just taking the compliment from people and not <laughs> not telling them that that thing that they like that I don't necessarily consider to be my best um, is bad or that they should feel bad for, <laughs> for, for liking that thing. Yeah, there's some. Um... Sometimes they come up to me at, like, you know, usually you get the usual, you know, could you sign this, you know, this Love and Rockets or this, you know, this DC comic you did or whatever, uh, graphic novel. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's great, great, great. And sometimes it'll bring one that I thought nobody liked. And they'll go, this is my favorite comic. And that makes me happy. Like some screwball thing that I just did that nobody liked or I don't suspect they did because I'm just neurotic. Is there something that you look at that you feel like? was something really great that you did that just didn't get the the appreciation that it deserved at the time? Well, I never th- do think anything I do is great. It was something to work on, <laughs> something to make better. Um, no, I don't. I guess Palomar is the only one that uh, I'm the most proud of, as in I, I did something that was different and new in comics, really. That, that, that's what that was about. Because uh, the other stuff is just my goofy imagination. But I, I but like I said, drawing superheroes and monsters and stuff, it's, it's, a, it's a small window for me. It's not like, there's nothing epic in there for me to continue so i can only do it in short bits so when i did series and graphic novels with the you know science fiction stuff it was fun and good and i'm glad people liked them when they did but um that's not that's not my strength i've I've learned that over the years you know i like drawing it though but uh drawing and writing is two different things in in that sense that i I like i love to draw a science fiction story the way it looks the way it plays out uh the ideas that come with it but it's not it doesn't have the weight of Palomar for me. So. Where does something like Scarlet fit in there? That's, like I said, it's, it's, it's a little bit more on the, the type of comic books I've been talking about, just science fiction, a, 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 length, a lengthy Twilight Zone, say, <laughs> you know. Um, I was just thinking in terms of that, because uh, originally I wanted the character Fritz to be the actress in, in all these uh, books, the movie books, to be... Uh, I, I, I said she was a B-movie actress right away, so it wouldn't be a shock to see her doing different things like that. Like she's acting as a cat monster in Scarlet, you know? And um, 
in Hypnotwist, she's just, uh, you know, the classic story of the person waking up and they don't know where they are and all this mysterious, surreal stuff happens. Those are classic, you know, ideas that have been on the you know, TV shows like The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits in the old days. That's something I just really liked. Uh, it's really, so that's really, those are really indulgences for me. But no matter how indulgent I get, I want the reader to have something, to read something, you know, have something there to enjoy, whether it's, made up stuff or the way I drew something or the way I wrote something or, or, or set up a scene. Um, as long as a reader can find entertainment and fun in that, I'm, I'm happy. Even if it doesn't have the same kind of uh, warmth that the better Palomar stories had, you know, not all my stories are warm. As <laughs> Clay Wilson died recently and I was reading, uh-huh. um, I think it was the Washington post put together some cartoonist quotes and, and you were in there and he said something mm-hmm. along the lines of, you know, I feel like I'm going to hell for reading this or something like that, you know, because this stuff was as much of the, the comics were of that era. But but in some ways, his stuff was kind of above and beyond. And like I was mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. I, I, I had read Scarlet in, in another form early on. Um, mm-hmm. And there were mm-hmm. definitely beats that jumped out at me because like there's some there's some shocking stuff that happens in Scarlet. I mean, it, it goes to some pretty to some pretty dark places. Mm hmm. Well, if to me it was more like uh, I've I've learned a lot about people's secret, you know, fantasies and stuff just by stuff that you would uh, hear about on the internet. See, all this stuff has come out on the internet. You can even even as safe as YouTube is, they should, you can uh, stumble upon some crazy ass shit, you know. So that's what I was thinking of. I think like, well, there's guys out there that would like to be with a Catwoman monster if they could. <laughs> you know, to me, that's creepy and weird and smelly and disgusting. But at the same time, so I I try to humanize those stories. I made the cat people uh, sympathetic as much as I could, you know. And so the guy, the scientist, he hooks up with her only because he can in this story, you know, in this kind of story. So that's where it becomes a B movie. And that's what, but I still uh, insist on making uh, the, 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 this, the sad cat lady uh, sympathetic. That's the most important thing to me. The Twilight Zone comparison makes perfect sense, you know, in a sense. Is there sort of a sense of morality to Scarlet? Is there is there a lesson there? I mean, you know, if I had to take a shot in the dark, it would be that human beings are capable of some sick shit. Yeah, some sick shit. And, and they don't care when they, when they're done with it. See, that was the whole point is that, you know, at the end, uh, yeah, he obviously cares about Scarlet. And, you know, the other other scientists do too. But then when it's over, it's like, okay, I'll see you later, you know. You know, sorry, you got your head chopped off. Uh, you know, I got you know America to go back to. You know, just yeah, that just the selfishness and uh, irresponsibility of you know people. You know, that's that's a good theme in science fiction. <laughs> Do you just touch on something really interesting? This idea of I've got America to, to go back to. Is it a story about colonization? Um, you know what? A lot of those things that I do in my stories, because they're always called out that way. Oh, you did a story about colonization. And I have to like think back like, oh, yeah, that's what it was. Because <laughs> I'm not aware of it as I'm doing the story. It just seems like the prop, the right things that would happen as it unfolds to me. That's a t- Storytelling is that. And as nutty and you know, science fiction-y as Scarlet is, it's like I said, the whole point was just to make her uh, sympathetic, even though you know, things bad, really bad things happen. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. As you're saying this idea of going back to America, you know, I'm thinking about colonization. I'm thinking about the way soldiers behave in war. It's like a dramatically compounded version of the way people act when they stay in a hotel room. You do things in a hotel room, even if it's just leaving, you know, towels all over the place that you wouldn't do 
in your home. Oh, right. And this is, yeah. <laughs> and this is kind of the same case because I, you know, not to like drill down on it too much, but you, you know, there, there's this guy, the scientist who, as you said, you know, makes it with Scarlet, but then it takes an even darker turn from there. Like there's even, yeah, there, there's far worse stuff that happens in there. And it's just kind of, I think you, you just hit on it really well, where it's like, there are things that we, we will do when we're not here that we won't do when we're back mm-hmm. in the States or back at home. I just saw a thing, um, this little short little uh, documentary thing on, on TV. Uh, and it was about how much sexual abuse there there is in the military. How many women are sexually abused because there's more of them since Desert Storm. There's more yeah. women on the lines, more women out there, but there's more sexual harassment, more violent rapes, just horrible crap. And and it's, it's all kept quiet because it's military. You know, we don't talk about that. And, uh, it just was really sad to me. It's like, you know, these women go over there thinking they're going to do something. You know, they, they, want, to, they want to do something. I'm, I don't agree with joining the army, but they did. And so, you know, I back them up a little bit. And they just go through so much hell sometimes in some cases. And apparently it's a lot. And, and you know, that's not news. That's not on the news where, like, oh, we've got to get rid of this. No, that's just something that I happen to see in a little documentary, you know. So anyway, it's like that. It's like, oh, boy, there's all this stuff going on. People are just ready to be evil <laughs> when the gate, go, gates are open. There are certain people, not everybody, but certain people who can't wait to be evil. Uh, there's a guy that we had trouble with for, for four years, and he's one of those people. Uh, but <laughs> Again, sort of getting back this idea the S. Clay, your, your quote about S. Clay Wilson about going to hell, and I suspect a lot of that is sort of informed by having grown up a Catholic and you know having these pretty like strict strict structures. But is part of what makes you able to draw some of these darker themes just the knowledge that you're reflecting some actual horrible things that go on in the world? I, I started, yeah, I started emphasizing that in my you know, my, my comics, because as a kid, I, I didn't think of the world that way. It was, matter of fact, monsters and that stuff was an escape instead of, and horror, violence and movies and stuff. It's clear who the monster is and who isn't the monster, mm-hmm. right? There's there's that mm-hmm. delineation. So I, I drew, um, I've talked about this before. I've, I used to draw real violent comics when I was, say, from like fourth grade to sixth grade, just because I, I got a hold of some horror comics that were so violent, ugly, black and white. <laughs> I was tickled by them. I, I knew they were awful, you know, but they just cracked me up. I go, well, they're selling this to kids, so it can't be that bad, even though it was. I mean, the stuff you see. And then shortly after that was underground comics. So I always had this creepy feelings of like, this is kind of cool to draw. I want to read this and that's not. But once I became adult, I saw, you know, that shit really happens to people. The, the awful part, the violent part, not the monsters, not that, not the violent part. You know, so many people have gone through that for, and then you, and then you start going deeper for centuries, for centuries, uh, man's inhumanity to man, that kind of thing. And it's like, wow, you know, and I thought, well, so I started if, so I, I'll still do it in the fantasy six uh, sense, but uh, I'm normally, I tried to uh, use super, super violence as, as something horrible. Because it happens to real people. I guess I would say spoiler, but I think if people have made it, you know, fifty-three mm-hmm. minutes into this podcast, I, I'm assuming they probably read the book. It's done in a science fiction way, but there's a depiction of of child rape and child murder, like the worst. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You'd be hard pressed to think of a, a worse thing. Yeah. Are there are there places you won't go? Well, here's the thing: since it was a science fiction story, and I did want to say serious things within that story. I, if you'll notice, it's only the monkey people, the, the, the cat people that, that suffer this stuff. They, they suffer this. I wouldn't, I don't, I would have a hard time drawing human children in that same way. 
the way I did, the way I depicted it. So you 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 hide behind the monster aspect of it, even though you're telling something serious. The way old Hollywood did in the old days, you know, you'd have a, a movie that seems like fluff, but they would have serious themes in there. Um, they can get away with it. So anyway, yeah, like uh, the stuff that happens uh, to the children, monk, uh, cat children, is so horrible that I could never draw that uh, with humans. I, I could just couldn't do it. I hate asking such an obvious question, but like, I really have to know what the initial germ of that idea is. You know, I, I read it and I'm I, I'm thinking of some David Lynch works. I'm thinking of uh, like a Velvet Glove, I think is probably a good comparison to make. It's one of the more surreal things you've done. And, you know, there's not there's not a ton of linear narrative. Where What was the initial idea? I wanted to do, for years, I wanted to do a, a, a story without words because my, words are my crutch. So if I don't have words. I've got to play out the story. Say, say with words, you can uh, you could jam, you know, so much information in one page. With when you don't use the words, you have to pace it out like a silent movie. You know, each step of what they're doing, if it to make it flow and make it interesting to read. If I'd want to do that, and I just kept holding off, and then I, like you said, I I, I love the films of David Lynch and oddball uh, surreal films, and I, I thought that would be, be a great thing to do because it's really a classic story. Person wakes up in a new world. You know, they don't know how they got there, you know, and that's, that's what, that's, that there's an old movie, uh, the, probably the strongest influence was a, a movie from the early fifties called Dementia or, uh, the, the subtitle, the, the, the re-released version of it's called Daughter of Horror. And it's basically a, a woman wakes up in a tattered, you know, hotel room and then goes out and has all these scary, creepy, you know, surreal adventures. And then at the end, she, um, spoiler alert, and then at the end, she realized it's all a dream. She just wakes up, wakes up and it happens again. You know, we've, we've seen that so many times. So I want to do something like that, you know, just uh, go, use my imagination instead of my uh, usual way of writing, which is words. And uh, I know it's just a, just a challenge. It was a challenge to make it entertaining. The movie that it's loosely based on or that inspired it, you know, there is kind of a happy mm-hmm. ending and that she goes through some terrible stuff. None of it actually happened. Uh, she goes mm-hmm. through some pretty rough stuff here too and comes through at the the other side. Um, you know, do you think the fact that it is a character that you've invested so much in and that you do have an emotional connection to that you had to give her a happy ending? Uh, no, I, it was just to... Yeah, you know what? I guess so. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Because sometimes I'll give her a terrible ending and sometimes I'll give her a happy ending. And that happened to be, I go, well, since it's this movie, the story is creepy and weird, you contradict it with a happy ending, you know, instead of a worse ending than what, what she's experienced, you know? Because it's like, say, uh, and Scarlet's different because you don't really see the doom that happens at the end of the story while you're reading it. You see trouble, a lot of trouble, but not the hellish doom that it ends up. So that's the opposite. You know, it's like, oh, oh, Scarlet's a really nice animal. She's really super nice. What happens to nice people? One of the things that strikes me about Hypnotwist is something that I've noticed in some of your work. And I've always I've always been curious how conscious this is. It seems like a lot of your work almost operates in dream time, if that makes sense, that that you have a mm-hmm. unique pacing. You know, a lot of times it'll be more straightforward in the more narrative stuff, but it seems to sort of operate in a different time than reality is is that something that you're conscious of when you're doing that work um yeah i'm conscious of i want it to be a dream uh, basically okay this you know it's just it's real simple i look at it, the story like that and i go okay it's a dream because my 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 some of my fondest memories growing up as a small child was having cool dreams i used to have cool dreams you know and uh, mysterious dreams and i didn't know what they meant and this and that and now as a, an adult since i've been doing comics for almost 40 years i don't dream like i used to because during the day, 
you know, this is what I understand. During the day, uh, most people who have normal lives, regular jobs, they dream a lot because they're stuck in these jobs that, you know, don't require imagination, let's say. Um, whereas an artist sometimes will do all this stuff, like say a cartoonist like me, will just do all his imagination constantly during the day. And so you just sleep through the night and and don't come up with the dreams or don't remember them. Because they're not as, even though I do have one uh, interesting dreams once in a while, they're not. They're when I was a kid, they were amazing, and that's what I'm basing this on. I just the the, the wonder of them. And I have had my nightmares, but uh, the wonder of those cool dreams, uh, I just try to put them in my comics. It doubly jumps out at me because it's a wordless comic. You know, the the, the dialogue is what often keeps us in the time of comics, right? You, your your brain can process mm. how to read them, but you take that out and you add the surreal element. And it just, it does feel like, it feels like a different kind of pacing, sort of speaking abstractly, but does, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That it just, the amount of time from panel to panel and the way things flow is mm-hmm. different than it would be in a more narrative story. Sure. Uh, it goes, goes back to, like I said, movies, um, uh, like an old, say an old forties uh, movie where the dialogue is really snappy and going back and forth. You can cut, you can compress time that way because the words will, it will make it move faster. Just what they say. Uh, whereas the, the, the the, the Hypnotwist is basically a silent movie. You have to see everything they're doing. What makes uh, uh, the early Chaplin movies and Buster Keaton in particular uh, so wonderful to watch is you're just seeing everything happening. So these guys have to be good enough to keep you entertained. A lot of movies, um, when they get arty in the 50s, European movies, you would have people doing nothing. And it was boring, you know, unless – but it was but it was new, so it was taken seriously. Now I look at some of those movies. I saw – uh, a couple of movies because my daughter and I watch a lot of different kinds of movies together and she'll pick one that's a classic 50s movie from France or something and normally I would say oh, okay I, I guess what they were but they're of their time sometimes they're just boring they're just boring and I'm not interested in these rich people being sad that you know that they're rich you know that kind of thing after a while you start to think well that one didn't work for me <laughs> you know it might have when I was young and learning about films but now I'm a jaded old man I didn't mean to pick on the Avengers. I actually like that movie. We've all got superhero burnout to some degree. There was just yeah so much of it compressed in such a in such a short. Well, time. after after Captain Marvel, I think I'm done, and not not because it's a woman superhero, but it's because uh, the we're, now we're coming to names that have already been around. You know, Captain Marvel is a classic 1940s comic, a great one, one that one of the great superhero comics, and now you have you know Marvel buys the name and says, well, now we have a new Captain Marvel. That doesn't work for me. <laughs> they could have called her Solaris or something. I don't know. Just can't get past the name. Do you get the sense that um, Love and Rockets is going to stick around in some form for as long as the two of you are still able to put ink to paper? Yeah, pretty much. I, we, I can't imagine life without it anymore. Uh, and luckily, I only have 16 pages an issue. You know, uh, when, when there's too much, you, could, you can get burnout. You can get that. I don't want to do this anymore. But if you focus on like, this is only 16 pages, dude. Don't be a wuss. You know, you can get this out. And even though I'm having some trouble finishing this last issue because of writer's block, it's still only 16 pages, so I can get through it. But uh, I can still express myself there. If I have new feelings about something, if I, my life changes, that can go in there. It, it's not like it's going to lose readers like, say, a comic book, a comic strip like Peanuts. You know, if Charles Schultz did any changes to it that the readers uh, didn't expect or didn't want, you know, he would have he would have had some trouble with it, you know with the syndicate and all that stuff. Uh, but Love and Rockets is completely free of it. After, I guess, almost 40 years, people 
people trust you. People, tr- people trust you to go along the journey with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you never to know. A point. <laughs> yeah. To a point. Yeah. As long as I make look at, as long as I make enough of the characters, a uh, characters to, to, to follow and, you know, relate to, you know, I think, I think it's a little safe that way, even though I'm, I don't do that all the time. I'm always drawing really uh, you know, unpleasant things just because like I said, it's my monster movie background. <laughs> 